Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. It is show number 88. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres. Suspense. Mysteries. Thrillers. And crime. Welcome to the show. We've had another busy week. I've had a little bit of a break just the last couple of days, but it's been a busy week. It has, and I can't, I can't for life me remember what I did last week. <laughs> oh, it was it was just one of those things where there was lots and lots and lots of bits. Yeah. We, we launched a book. We did. We did launch a book, Cousin Ash by S.E. Shepherd. We did, and that's shortly after we launched two further books, so it's been really busy. It's been a busy month, hasn't it? But yeah, it has. August is a great month for published books, I think, because people are on holiday, they have time off, they're looking for things to read, so it's been wonderful. Yeah, Absolutely. Welcome to the show. Well, what do we do on this show? We talk about running Hobeck Books. We talk to a wonderful guest. And this week, it is Amy Lee, who is over in the United States. We spoke to Oklahoma. I've never spoken to Oklahoma in my life. No, indeed. Indeed. And Amy runs Quillhawk Publishing, which is uh, a new approach. Well, semi-new approach to, to publishing. I, mean, I suppose the emphasis is on bringing voices that don't normally get published to print and that's her aim as indeed her voice is in that vein because she uh, escaped vietnam in 1979 with her mum was a vietnam boat child mm. after the fall of saigon and as a result of that uh, she moved to the united states and she only in recent years when her mother passed away decided to write and write her mother's story which uh, as you'll hear is an emotional uh, process and, and journey for Amy. And following that, she has given up her corporate job and has concentrated on publishing. So it was lovely to speak to somebody in the United States. It's a different, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, um, environment to be publishing in to, to ours here in the yeah, UK. Yeah, because I think most of the books that she's publishing, there are some fictionalized accounts based on real life stories, aren't there? But mm. there's sort of memoirs as well. But like you say, the biggest thing uniting all the books that she's looking to publish is this sort of um, almost reflection and um, dealing with some sort of trauma mm. through being involved in some sort of historic event or, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. Family tales as well. Mm. So that's um, that's really exciting to listen to. And that's coming up later. So Amy Lee is our, our big guest. We'll get into some news now. Two stories that stood out for us this week. And actually, they were in sort of the middle of the week. This is not exactly necessarily fresh stuff but what we wanted to talk about they're kind of important stories the first is yet again i mean shining a light on the traditional publishing industry is this court case between the department of justice and their stance against a merger of penguin random house and simon and schuster and penguin random house were defending their position of trying to get bigger by saying that of the 58,000 
traditionally published titles, they revealed that of those, half of them will only sell 12 copies. And so they're arguing that by being bigger, they're insuring themselves against those failures. Yeah. Now, I mean, when you look at face value, that that statement, less than half of those titles, say, what was that, coming up to 30,000 books, sell yeah. fewer than 12 a year. When I first read that, I thought, that, that cannot be true. That's what I thought. I thought, well, that can't possibly be true. But actually, if you dig a little deeper, there, there could be some element of truth in that. I mean, if they they can back this up, I don't know how they would. But I found another statistic. The average US book sells fewer than 200 copies a year. So that's the average. Yeah, per year. And then what's the the subsequent figure? Less than 1,000 per lifetime, over its lifetime. Blimey. Okay. Well, you know, um, some of our data bears that out. To, to not, not, not as starkly as that, but some books fly. Some don't. Well, I have an, something else. So th- I saw a Facebook conversation. I'm not going to say who, but there was a Facebook conversation about this issue. And mm. um, one of the people who commented was a f- former buyer from Waterstones. Right. And this person made the comment that, because uh, a lot of people are saying, that can't be true. That's ridiculous. They're just saying that to back up yeah, yeah, the, 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 their the desire. Aggressive stance to, to, to merger, yeah. And he said, do you know what? It could be true. He said, for example, a will self-backlist copy book, mm-hmm. 50 copies a year. Wow. If Martin Amos, if he produced a new hardback, it's about 1,000. Martin Amos only shifts 1,000 yeah. copies? Yeah, that's what he was claiming. Wow. And f- 90% of titles sell fewer than 2,000 units? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, increasingly, it, it goes to show that there are no guarantees that you're going to sell a lot of books just because you're published. No. and In fact, that you know, if anything, the chances are you're not. It is quite depressing to think about it. Yeah, um, you look at the here's here's the um, here's an analogy I could draw from business. So I watched some. This is some time ago when Dragons Den was a relatively new TV format, and they had one of their sort of uh, you know behind the deals kind of shows where they'd already done the deals on the show, and then they looked at why the Dragons made the investments they did and why they drive such a hard bargain for such a high proportion sometimes of, of businesses for what appears to be relatively low sum of money, like 50 grand or something for mm. 50%. And it's because most business angels in who do this type of investment are expecting one of those, one of out of every 10 investments to actually make the money. And they ha- that thing has to be do so spectacularly. It, it pays it for the nine, mm. the nine failures they've had. And, I, th- I I increasingly feel that that is publishing to some extent. No, I think you're right, and I think with the big publishers, they they know that the majority of their titles won't make them any money, but it's that, that, that it's those little diamonds mm. that sell off, uh, fly off the shelf. So Sally Rooney is a great example. Started off as a literary fiction, did probably didn't sell that many. You know, it was in all the bookshops. Yeah. And then the TV, the, the BBC did the adaptation of... Um, and it went bonkers. And it went bonkers. And then she wrote a new book and everybody wanted to buy it because they'd seen the TV of the other mm-hmm, one, they'd mm-hmm. read it. Was it the same standard, though? I mean, some people say it's well, not. 
no, I didn't think it was as good, but not not even close. It's very slow. She's she's a very slow literary writer. Okay, everyone's well. You wouldn't like it. The millennials who are oh god, very no. introspective. Count but... me out of that. <laughs> How interesting. No, I'm, this this um, this plays into our next conversation. Actually, this whole industry thing. So we would recommend, this was a recommendation by Linda Hubert to our author group on Facebook. We have a group for all the authors to, to share ideas and support and whatever. But this was to suggest listening to Radio 4's Front Row, yes, which was on the 30th of August. And it, the, the feature interview was Anne Cleves. Which was interesting. In itself, yeah. talking about her latest Vera book. Um, but the main thing that then went on to do was an investigation into the practices of the publishing industry in terms of promotion in different bookshops. And we've discussed on this program before the sort of money that Penguin, well, we don't know the, the sums involved, but we do know that they paid for Richard Osman to feature at number one in W. H. Smith's chart for as long as possible when that first book, Thursday Murder Club, came out. Yeah. And we felt at the time this is deeply unfair, but apparently this is pretty much standard practice at WH Smith's. And one f- thing that they had in this um, feature, it was about 10 minutes long, was the revelation of a, a, an email that had been shared by a publisher from WH Smith citing how much it would cost to make a book, the book of the week, within WH Smith's stores. And it was mm. £2,000 plus other a 60% dis- discount on the cover price. So 60% of the cover price would be given into W.H. Smith. And uh, our the friend of the show, Mark Stay, who's been on the show and we've been on his, uh, was saying, well, that's pretty cheap compared to some of the deals that I'm aware of mm. when I was working at Orion. So there you go. I mean, this is what W.H. Smith do. Now, James Daunt was quoted. He runs Waterstones and Barnes & Noble, and he got rid of pay f- per slot uh, advertising opportunities at Waterstones, and actually by following the market and stocking the things that actually sell well, he's made more money. But actually gave up, get this, £29 million of revenue was tied in to publishers paying for the privilege of having their books in Waterstones. And they got rid of that and actually making more money as a consequence. So that was that was quite a risk to do. Yeah, it was very risky yeah. and I'm glad it's worked for him and it's also made it a little bit more egalitarian, but only a little because actually it's still centrally... Sorry, I've got Flyman again, it's disturbing me. Um, it is still a case of having to build the relationship with Waterstones and get them to take the book in and that is so difficult to do, um, especially for you know publishers our size at the moment. So... Again, it just there's lots of evidence in this in this feature on Radio Four. No, nobody prepared to really name them, you know, c- come out and say things publicly. They wanted their names withheld. Just how much of a closed system the UK publishing industry is? Yeah, and how how little it has actually changed. Yeah, even though you know they put forward this this image of forward thinking digital bloody bloody blah, blah but actually there's a lot that's ingrained and has been like that for years and it's just accepted it's such mm. a british way of operating isn't it yeah 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 it's just, you know it, it's, it's a like lot politics <laughs> well it's a bit like yeah absolutely and what was interesting actually is the emphasis that traditional publishers put on the sunday times bestseller list particularly in fiction that's the be all and all absolutely get, to get that across the front cover saying it's a top 10 bestseller in the sunday times is the thing they're all aiming at and they'll do whatever it takes to do that 
and that is actually, you know, something that takes money, essentially. And, um, you know, the likes of us don't have that. So it is. it was a sobering that's the word week yeah, of information but also reassuring in the sense that you know we find selling books at times a big struggle so i mean we can't we can't deliver the numbers for everybody is the truth of it it yeah. just doesn't hasn't worked out that way there's no guarantee and so you know you look at if that is and we thought we were unique in this but it's not the case no so you know we still want to um buck that system and buck those trends uh, and we work every day to try and do that but you know realistically it's an uphill struggle it is it is an uphill struggle I mean I, I always I have a lot of faith in word of mouth and um, people discovering things for themselves they, they discover one of our books and they love it and then they want to read more I love it when somebody tells me that and they say I read your book by so-and-so and then I went on to read this one by so-and-so which you publish and I yeah. love it well that's that's Essentially, our aim is to create a, a, a <laughs> legion of, of, of people who love Hobet books who will read whatever we put out because they know it's been through our hands and we've chosen well. Yeah. And uh, it's a long battle to get to that point. Anyway, that's the news this week. Let's get into our interview. We'll, we'll chat about our plans for next week as uh, schools resume. Thank God. Um, next week. Yeah, not till the end of the week for us. <laughs> no, no, that's true. That's true. But uh, let's get to our interview, as we mentioned before, with Amy Lee from uh, Quillhawk Publishing. Explain the name a little later, it, it, fairly early on in the interview. Yeah. It's down to her love of uh, NFL and the Seattle Seahawks. But um, lovely to speak to Amy. We, we are keen to speak to as many people across the world in publishing because it enriches our experience and we think it enriches yours too. So let's talk to Amy Lee. Well, we're delighted to... In, to be in the company of Amy Lee over in the United States. Welcome to the show. Hello. I am excited to be here and to talk to you both. Thank you. Tell us where you are at the moment. So I am in Oklahoma City area, which is in the Midwest of the United States. And I originally am from Seattle, but I moved here four years ago. So it's quite a, quite a change. I was going to say, question. Yeah. is the coffee as good in Oklahoma as it supposedly is in Seattle? <laughs> no, <laughs> oh, I, I love Seattle coffee and I love the Seattle weather. It's much more mild. I, there's a lot of things I love about Seattle, but I will say Oklahoma has the beauty of um, not only the kind people here, but um, there's so much sunshine. So there's always so much to do here in Oklahoma. So well, you're very welcome from Oklahoma. Thank you for joining us. And we're here to talk about your writing career, but also your publishing business in Quillhawk Publishing and uh, compare notes, I suppose. Yeah, because we publish too. <laughs> yes, I'm excited to learn about you as well. Well, fire away with any questions you have as we go along, but uh, we, uh, we're, we're delighted you could join us. So, Amy, first of all, just um, put us in your personal context. You mentioned you, you've moved over to Oklahoma City from seattle but before that you started life many many miles away from the united states that's right so i was born in vietnam um, nine months before the fall of saigon my mother um, brought me into this world and i was born with a congenital heart defect so i had a hole in my heart a big murmur and it was um you know predicted that i wouldn't live till the past the age of five 
my mom's main hustle to get out of the country, not only to save my life, but to also um, get out of the repression, uh, the repressive regime, right, of the communist regime. So in 1979, we escaped to Vietnam under the cloak of night, um, ended up in the um, ocean for five days with other boat refugees, a little bit scary, ultimately made it to a refugee camp and then got sponsored to Seattle of all places, cold, wet, miserable, <laughs> definitely not the tropics that we were used to. Um, but yeah, I lived in Seattle most of my life and, you know, fell in love with the Seattle Seahawks team, hence the Quill Hawk publishing name. Um, Hawk is from the Seahawks and Quill is the writing instrument, of course. Um, and then, yeah, four years later or four years ago, my husband got a job opportunity out here. He's in the natural gas refinery industry. And I decided I didn't want to go back to the corporate world anymore. I wanted to really focus on writing. And, you know, we went down to one income. So this Oklahoma was the place to be. It was a lower cost of living. Yeah, absolutely. Seattle is one of the more expensive places in the United States, after all. Um, that is a remarkable story. And it takes me back to when I was nine years old and we um, housed two people who were looking after uh, Vietnamese boat people who came in to Cambridge in the United Amazing. Kingdom uh, in 1979. Kim and Saraya, they were they were called. Uh, one of them was from Sarawak, but she, you know, had the language. And um, it was a remarkable time. I mean, I think a lot of people have almost it's it's been pushed away in their memories. But what a one! I mean, it's an incredible story, really, because now we're facing in I mean, getting political here. I know <laughs> he does this sometimes. But there's, a, there's a lot of there's a lot of migration across Europe and into the UK by boat, and people risking their lives to get here. And I think people forget just how generous the West was in the light of what happened in Vietnam, and to people like yourself, opened their doors and allowed you to settle and create the life that you have. And um, I think it's easily forgotten. But I mean, I'll take you back to that time. You were obviously very, very little. At what stage did you realize, did it, did your consciousness of the migration that you, you'd taken hit you? Was it, you know, in early, you know, when you were a toddler or was it later? That's a good question. And honestly, it didn't hit me until 2017. Really? Uh, when I was 43. That, <clears throat> and I say that because that's when my mom passed away. You know, mm -hmm. she was everything to me when we left Vietnam it was just my mom myself and my cousin who was 16 at the time and you know when you're little you don't have a grasp of what's really going on and you just bob along um, and you hustle along and you just try to survive and you know you support your your family so growing up all I did was you know focus on getting those A's you know that my mom was like education is super important and growing up, it was, you know, <clears throat> focusing on getting a career and climbing that corporate ladder to hit that ceiling. Um, but 2017, my mom passed away with lung cancer, devastated me. And <clears throat> I quit my corporate career for two years to honor her by writing her story. So I spent a lot of time unearthing uh, our history, traveling to Vietnam, getting reacquainted with my culture, my roots. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, what an incredible journey uh, we went through. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Pretty darn scary. The, well, absolutely. And I can see the, the emotion that that's, this is conjuring up. And I'm sorry to, to take you there so early on in the interview, but I really wanted to, to, to make that connection and, and establish 
the change in your life in the sense that, you know, your mother had pushed you hard educationally to achieve the career you did. And then to make the big decision to step away from that and to go down to one income and concentrate on writing and publishing. It's, it's quite a transition. What did it coincide with that period of your life? Yes, absolutely. Excuse me. Prior to this, I never thought about writing. You know, I, when I was in my teenage years and I was really angry, I I wrote a lot of poetry, but they were horrible poems. It was all cuss words, (laughs) you know, really bad stuff. (laughs) That thing I would publish. And yeah, it wasn't until my mom passed away that I was like, okay, I need to figure out how to write this story, how to pull this out of her um, through my cousin, through interviews. You know, I talked to war veterans and refugees I tried to pick on um, the memory bank of, you know, things that my mom would talk about. And she would always do the surface level talk and, and talk about the happy moments, never the nitty gritty stuff. Yeah. And um, it wasn't until after I reconnected with my dad uh, later that I was able to write my third book, Snow's Kitchen. And that really was uh, a therapeutic thing for me because the third book in the trilogy trilogy was a closure in terms of okay this is my life now how did all this come together and how did it affect me based on uh, what my mom experienced in the snow in vietnam and snow in seattle books yeah yeah so the the snow in vietnam is the start of the trilogy taking you back there what was it like to go back to the or presumably was it the first time you'd been back to vietnam when 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 you started researching this it was not it was actually my third visit uh, to Vietnam and I had gone when I was working at Microsoft it was 20 gosh I don't remember the year but anyways I was working at Microsoft and my mom was going to go back there to have a reunion with her family and I just I just said you know I gotta go so we went for a whole month and it was beautiful and I came back so humbled and amazed by the culture and the food oh my gosh it's always about the food (laughs) (laughs) um and it just, it just let, never left me, you know, it stayed deep in my heart. And so um, I, I went back three times total and I would love to go back again. Every time I go back, I think, oh, I'm not going to go back again because it just, it hurts so much sometimes, but um, it definitely connects me to my culture and my family. And I've now been involved with other organizations that are very connected to either the boat refugees or refugees in general, or the war veterans, military veterans, that it's, it's embedded in me now. It's, it's a thread of, of my being, right? So I definitely will be back in, in Vietnam probably in the next year or so. Now, it, it's a country that's changed a great deal, clearly, since yes. the fall of Saigon and has recovered remarkably in, in, in many ways and not least technologically because it's, you know, one of the... It's a tiger economy writ large, isn't it, at the moment? Uh, there was so much development there and, and uh, exciting prospects and opportunities but um how how I mean I, I've never been and I've always wanted to go no same but, here I've never been but 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 in terms of those scars left by you know more than a decade of conflict longer than much longer than that actually more like 15 20 years if you count the French into this um how, how deep are those scars or are they healing now they're definitely healing um and I think part of it is all that trauma is starting to bring out stories. And the more we write stories, the more healing it can be and educational it can be. Um, you know, when I go back there, even war veterans who go back there, the first thing that they hear is, you know, you are 
you are loved, you are, you are forgiven, you know, that's the past. Um, they, Vietnam has really done a good job being progressive and rebuilding and um, the younger generation, they don't really understand what happened. Um, so it's kind of our job to, to help them remember at least to honor what happened because you're right, you know, it wasn't just the American war as we called it, um, you know, we, we were colonized by the French and we, the Japanese occupation. So it, there was hundreds yes, of years of, of um, yeah. And, and beyond the Vietnam war or the, or the American war, we also fought with China again, you know, and um, the Khmer Rouge. I mean, it was just nonstop, yeah. but uh, the country, like I said, is so beautiful how resilient the people are. And I'm so proud to be a part of that community. Um, and they're still loving and they're still, you know, they find joy every day. They hustle every day. You know, they work hard. Um, when I first came back, I was like, gosh, nobody's working. They just lounge around and <laughs> they're always in their hammock. And But what I didn't realize was their business was their home, you know, so the front is their business and behind or upstairs is where they live. And so it is literally 24 seven that they're working. Yeah. A bit like here. <laughs> we work in our kitchen. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You wouldn't see me in a hammock though. Wouldn't it wouldn't oh, take I'd love away. A hammock. Oh, you oh. need to get I'd like one to meet some missions in a hammock. That sounds blissful with it. A... All right, I'll sort you one out. No problem at all. Tonic. <laughs> yes. I'm with you. <laughs> so it, it, tell us about the, the writing process over those books because clearly they're very strong emotionally in terms of the connection and um how easy was it to transition from the pressure uh, of that corporate career to finding the time and the headspace and the creativity to, to write? It wasn't that hard, honestly, because I was so ready. I think part of, part of it was because my mom passed away. And so emotionally, I was ready to disconnect from the corporate world. Mm. Um, but I did give them, you know, enough notice and wrap things up. So I felt good about that kind of closure. Um, honestly, the first month I did nothing. I walked around my neighborhood just to reflect and cry a lot, <laughs> get those emotions out. Um, but then I put my, you know, big girl pants on and I said, okay, let's do this. Let's go to the workshops. Let's buy modules to figure out what the heck is fiction. What is a <laughs> memoir? Like, I didn't know any of this stuff, um, really from grassroots ground zero kind of thing and joined a conference. You know, I was a fledgling. I knew nothing, but I was like kid in a candy store. I listened to everybody's um, speeches and just hung on to their words and took it into practice. Right. So yeah. when I wrote Snow in Vietnam, I wrote it initially in a third person past tense point of view. Mm. And you go through these revisions. I was like, this is garbage. So I scratched it, scrapped it and wrote it again in my mom's voice in first person present. Oh, wow. Um. And I just felt like it was much stronger. And I mm. went to a writing contest, my very first writing contest, and was uh, announced the finalist um, in that in that contest. So it was really, really exciting. And it just kind of put a stamp on it. Like, okay, I'm doing the right things. I'm going the right approach. And it just, it's amazing. Once you publish a book, it just grows its own wings and legs and has its own personality. And each book baby is different. It's got yes. its unique challenges. And they're all special, <laughs> just like your kids. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm really curious how, I mean, what did it feel like to recreate your mother's voice? It was, gosh, it was so beautiful. 
um, I can really, I, I envision my mom sitting there with me, mm -hmm. feeding me her words and her emotions. And, you know, it's not all heartache in these books, right? There's moments of joy and there's moments of humor. And I would literally laugh out loud because I would hear my mom <laughs> yeah. talking or I would envision her doing the things that she would do um, that I that I write about in the book. So it was it was just a beautiful thing. And I I think mom would be really proud to have her story live on and um, to have me write it, you know. Yeah, it's a lovely legacy, isn't it, for us? So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, at what stage from from the point of view of, of, of you know, if you're writing these books, um, did you decide to take it a step further and enable people to bring their stories? to the world yeah so i created quillhawk publishing in uh december 2019 yeah with the goal of just publishing my own books and in january of this year 2022 my friends were like you know we want to write a book how do we go about doing this and i said well let me help you <laughs> <laughs> and i uh this year i published eight books for other people and I was talking to a web designer who had been stalking me. I, I put that loosely in air quotes. He's been observing me for the past year. And he's like, you are doing so much good stuff. Why don't you create a business? Like help people. There's a need for this. If you build an amazing website, you know, people will come out of the woodworks and share their stories with you. So we officially launched the website yesterday, August 31st. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so check out the website, quillhawkpublishing.com. And um, yeah, you know, I decided let's do this. Let's help people go through the same journey as I did. You know, I found it very therapeutic and I, it's, you know, a good book should be educational as well as, um, you know, a good, I mean, it just, just hit you in the heart and there's so many people who have stories and it doesn't have to be, you know, fiction. It could be nonfiction. You know, you can use a book as a tool for your business or what have you to educate others. But yeah, I'm really excited to help others. I've got 14 um, under contract right now. Wow. And, um, but I do things a little bit different than you guys do. Sure. And, um, I actually do it through a consultative approach. So the, the authors that sign with Quillhawk Publishing, they own their own rights. They own their own royalties, everything. They pay me a one-time flat fee. I help them get through the ISBN process, you know, get them uploaded to Ingram Spark or KDP, whatever it is, yeah. uh, platform of their choice. Um, and then I help them promote it. And that's the biggest thing, as you know, you know, a lot of authors complain. They hate the promoting and the, and yeah, the marketing. Yeah, they want to just write, don't they? They yes. don't want to do the marketing. But if you want to be read, <laughs> uh, if you want those reviews, right, you, you have to promote it. And so, you know, Quillhawk Publishing partners with other industry experts. And so we really are all about the writer's journey from idea to lift off, as I say, and beyond. So it's not just formulating your ideas and getting it down from, from a content perspective, but going through the editing process, you know, going through the graphic design process for your cover. I mean, they get excited to be able to help with the, with the cover process. Um, and then after we actually publish it, you know, if they want, we'll do a a launch party, a virtual launch party. And it's, those are always a lot of fun. And then beyond, you know, we'll help promote, we'll help them get on a podcast, we'll help them, whatever it is. And I've got screenwriters, I've got audiobook narrators. Um, it really is whatever the author wants to do. I think I have enough network and resources to help them get there. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I mean, I think, you know, uh, that there are a lot of companies who will take the royalty side of it as well. 
from mm-hmm. the uh, on top of the production and marketing and all yeah, the so that's, and, that's uh, you're slightly different in that way that you're yeah you're facilitating, but it's still their their baby, their product, isn't it? So? Yeah, but there are other people in the marketplace who will just take whatever whatever the project is, you know, because there for them it's a volume business, but for you you have a selection process as well. You have to believe in the product, presumably. Absolutely. I, you know, one of our missions, right, or the mission really is to amplify diverse voices. And so obviously I, I navigate to um, those books who, who share stories that haven't been shared before, um, who are written by BIPOC authors or, you know, um, people who are in the marginalized space. So those books really get me excited. But at the end of the day, this is the author's journey and, this, and their dream. So unless it's really um, negatively reflecting upon Quillhawk Publishing, the content or the verbiage, uh, pretty much anything is, is a go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we'll share this, this experience in the sense that for every author, getting published is a dream. That is the dream. Um, but sometimes, you know, it, and, and the job of the publisher sometimes is to be nuanced in the way that you perhaps steer your author in a way that, you know, in terms of the presentation of the product, mm-hmm. the way the blurb is written, the cover design. Yes, yeah, it's, it's wearing your commercial hat, isn't it? Well, I mean, from our perspective, we're trying to pr- produce the best books for our readers and therefore sell more books. But from your perspective... What are the what are the areas of um, I don't want to say friction, but nonetheless, you know, the creative process. It can be quite difficult when you're dealing with someone's dream, mm-hmm. getting the balance right between doing what they want and what you know the project needs. Yes. So, a current example is an author who is writing writing something that is, in my opinion, a political piece, right? Um, which can be detrimental um before you know because anyways it's a very in my opinion a political piece but I did give some feedback on terms of how you can maybe shape that story so that there are more of a 360 view each one of your characters are so different let's let their personality let their point of view shine through so that people can relate to at least one of the characters and it's not very one-sided. It's not very fanatic either. There's also a religious leader in here that's running the show and it can get really hairy. Right. Um, (laughs) So that's the feedback that that I gave. Um, I do hope that that is taken into consideration. Um, This is an author that I had much respect for and, and we did a book together already. So I think there is that mutual understanding as well. And I'm excited to see how he's going to tweak it. And, you know, we'll keep going at it until I think at the end of the day, it really is, you know, it's his voice, but I want to make sure that it's presented in a, in a thoughtful way that it doesn't get either one of us in trouble. <laughs> oh, understandable, understandable. Um, in terms of the lead time between submission, acceptance, contracting, and delivery. What what sort of time period would you you be do, using uh, to to do that? It's been taking three to six months, mm. um, and a lot of the authors will that come to me already have their first draft. Um, yeah. They just don't know what to do with it, and so that's when we get the editors involved and, and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, and you know, some people like, like I got to tell you the story about Isaac. You know, he. 
lives in Africa or lived in Africa. And his main dream was to become a published author, but you can't publish anything in Africa unless it's government controlled. You know, the messaging is government controlled. Yeah. He, I was like, Isaac, you find your way to come to the United States. You find yourself a way to make um, a living here, you know, that you can have a bank account and, and all that. Um, and we'll publish this baby. And so uh, I'm proud to say that he did find his way to the United States, ended up in a detention center for a little bit um, yeah. while, while they were dealing with the paperwork, but he, he's now ready to go. Um, his book, When the Impossible Became Possible, is going to be coming out in the next couple of months. And, um, you know, it, for him, you know, it seems like that journey took years, um, but once it got into my hands it's going to take two months for us to to get it out we just we got the the cover all done and signed off and ready to go i just need to get past this weekend so i can actually have eyes on the editing piece of it um and with isaac because he you know english is not his first real language i'm just gonna do the entire uh polished version of the editing give it to him let him read it for one final you know and then off it goes so, yeah well, that's yeah. really inspiring, isn't it? I mean, to to have a to take that journey mm. in 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 search of publication and and that sort of fulfilling that dream is is really remarkable. Um, in terms of the the audience that you've developed for these books, uh, I mean, we you know we're still finding ours, and we would like it to be a bigger one. Um, it's always <laughs> the way. There's always a bigger audience out there. Uh, how how easy have you found it to 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 develop that audience for your for your authors? For my authors, um, it really is a branding thing, right? And it's really specific to each author. So it's, you know, they say that riches is in the niches, right? So yeah. the more niche you are, the better you're going to be able to market your book um, because it is a saturated environment and readers are very specific in what they want to read. So you got to find your readers. And I look at each one of my authors. I'm like, okay, what are you involved in? What are your talents? What are your um, weaknesses, right? Like for me, I hate writing blogs, but I have to suck it up buttercup and do my <laughs> blogs <laughs> because um, that's where I'm going to find my readers. And here's an example. I belong to a group that is a Costco group on Facebook. There's 40,000 members that I can tap yeah. into, you know? So I literally went into Costco yesterday holding Snow's Kitchen. And in there, there's, a, there's several, it's a half part of it is a cookbook, right? So the second half of the book is all about food. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Costco. I really am hankering to make my egg rolls. Let's see what I can get. And I'm going to blog about it. And I'm going to post it onto the Costco Facebook page. And that's going to hopefully naturally drive traffic to my website where they can read the rest of the blog. And hey, they'll also have eyes on Snow's Kitchen, my book, and the recipes that are in there. So, you know, it's trying to find those creative niches um, for each one of my authors. One of them is a singer-songwriter who's going into audiobook narration. She's also a physical therapist who's very involved in the assisted living community. No, right. Yep. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, let's figure out how we can tap into that community and get your books out there as well. So it's really tailored, you know, to each person. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I mean, one of the things that's so difficult at the moment is that everyone is using Facebook, everyone's using Amazon ads, and all those sort of things. It's kind of done. Yeah, you have to be saturated. creative, don't you? So that's that's really interesting to to sort of uh, to 
to, to sort of go down those paths and, and, and try and start those communications and making those relationships. Yeah, and using the talents of the authors, which I quite like. It's got me thinking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're going to find her in, in Costco. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I haven't done Costco for years, but uh, it's quite. Oh, see, an I don't know what Costco is. Costco is a huge wholesaler, um, which is basically, you know, you would use it. I mean, businesses would use it. Oh, for, like um, oh, cash and carry. Yeah, it's a cash and carry, but <laughs> but you, you know, you know, it's almost impossible to find a way of not be, being a member, if you know what I mean. And there are enormous discounts as long as you have the biggest freezers in the world. <laughs> you, you know, you can take. <laughs> Uh, their trays of 46 chicken legs and, and do something with it well they wouldn't yeah. go in our freezer i can tell you no, that. It wouldn't. our freezer is always full <laughs> oh yeah yeah but bulk is the game um, <laughs> but it, it is remarkable uh and if you want 500 meters of aluminium foil for your uh, sorry aluminum foil foil for your kitchen then that's fine you can get a year's It'd supply for, for about 10 pounds because for, for sculpture if i wanted to make a, a metal sculpture i'd just go and get a load of foil Yes, that would be great. Yeah, Costco's your place. And duct tape, duct tape for days. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's. I I do miss it actually because it's just you know. But the thing well, is, where did you have access to one? I had one in in uh, London. Um, oh right. <laughs> yeah, the BBC. You you could join Costco, and uh, yeah, and the other thing we do is good tires. What well, not... for cars? Yeah, they've got a tire fitting <laughs> service. All the taxi drivers use them because they put... sounds well... amazing. They put nitrogen in the uh, in the tires rather than air. So um, anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> yeah, Costco's great. Travel, everything, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really is. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, that that's brilliant. I mean, uh, so it's really new. I mean, this is. I mean, we we incorporated in 2019 in December. So our um, our lives are sort of yeah in, that, yeah in that regard. But it's a, it's a different model. Um, and in terms of um, I, I, I'm guessing because of these very personal stories that people are telling in, in different formats, they're really resonating with people. Yes. Um, I always say that if it's coming from your heart and if it makes you laugh, if it makes you cry, your readers are going to feel the same way. So, and you know, in writing, you, you're supposed to show and not tell. So when we go through the editing process too, we, we find areas where there's um, opportunities to show, there's, you know, whether there's head hopping, because that can get a little confusing. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I'm guilty of that as well. And so it's, but a lot of these authors who come also that I'm finding out, they, they have one or two books already under their belt. So they're not necessarily newbies, or maybe they were traditionally published and now they want to explore indie publishing. Yeah. Um, so you have both the newbies and the seasoned, um, you know, it's everybody, again, it's everybody's journey and um, we're just here to help them along that path. And it's been an exciting year already. I mean, it's only September 1st right now, but um, I'm really excited for 2023 and what that can bring. And I've got some authors who've signed, but they're not ready to publish until 2025, which is the 50th anniversary of the fall of Saigon. I do have a few uh, Vietnamese authors. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, one of them is publishing actually this year, and it's a memoir of his escape, his boat refugee experience as well, when he was eight years old with just him and his dad, you know, similar to me and my mom. So, yeah, I'm ready for that, that tearjerker, oh, yeah. too. So I always try yeah, to get tissues away when I do book signs, because a lot of the books do make you cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. But I, I have a question, because because we, we work together, we live together, so and the business is at home. How hard do you find it to switch off? Because 
you know, it sounds like you get so emotionally involved in all these stories. It must be quite difficult to just park it all for a bit. And... It is really, really hard because your office is your home. But I will say that I just um, scouted out a work um, a workplace, like a community co-op workplace um, mm -hmm. here in, in Oklahoma. And uh, I'm about to sign the contract. So I will actually have an office away from home. Um, but you know what? My husband travels Monday through Friday every single week. My my child is in school doing sports. Doing, he's got his own life. He's 13. And I just have my fur babies. So a lot of times what's really um, hard for me is disconnecting from the laundry and the dishes and the, you know, the food in the fridge and the wine. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's a good thing that I have this other place away from home. And if you can afford to do that, I definitely encourage it because it really, you can separate and compartmentalize that. I mean, yeah, that's what we need. So, you know, everything's done here. I've got three boys. We've got a cat. And, you know, I, I sat there tapping away at the laptop and there's a child saying, um, can I have this? To, can I eat this? And then the cat's curling around my feet because she's hungry. And Yes. <laughs> yeah. Lots of distractions. <laughs> no, there are. And then, then you add me into the mix and it's a complete distraction. Yeah, he's been, he's been cooking an enormous chicken and leek pie all morning and I've been sat there oh. working. <laughs> I can almost smell it. So, been driving me mad. Yeah, but I've also been driving you mad because the amount of washing up I generate. I mean, I am one of the messiest cooks, and it's just. Oh no, no! I think I got you beat there, Adrian. Really? I love to cook too, and I don't use anything twice. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that, that's so me it piles too. up. Yeah, spoons everywhere, pots everywhere. Yes, it's he's quite good at splattering, though, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I don't know how this has <laughs> happened, but I've developed a. You know, I'm just painting the, the kitchen with... with it uh, looks like a Jackson Pollock at the it moment. It does, it does. <laughs> it is artistic. Cooking is an artistic endeavour. It <laughs> is. Absolutely it is, yeah. It is, yeah. I, I have... It's like an interesting blend of science and art, I think. Well, I mean, I just can't... <laughs> so the, the the recipe instruction said, oh, this is, you know, sort of 40 minutes prep and, you know, one hour cooking or whatever. And it's taken me three hours and we're not even at the cooking stage, really. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. So... <laughs> That's, and then that's... it takes them this much amount of time, three minutes to eat, and then boom, yeah. they're done. <laughs> yeah, it'll be it'll be like the Simpsons. And then it'll be like, what's for pudding? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have pudding, yes. Yeah, gotta gotta have it. And away from away from all this, the creativity, we were intrigued to see your your you mentioned your passion for uh NFL and uh, uh I'm very glad to say my nephew is pursuing that path. In American mm. football, uh, over in the states, and he's in Ohio at the moment uh, with Garden State. I think it was it called Garden City. Garden City. Yeah, um, playing for the the Broncos, and uh, uh, he is trying to uh, to get into the NFL. Um, so mm. that's uh, so that I can I can follow the passion. Now I've got someone who knows what they're doing about it, and as, as a left tackle, it's been it's been fascinating. <laughs> the other thing is combat sports. You you like your combat sports. Yes, I love the UFC. I don't know what it is, um, but I've loved it since cage fighting had no rules. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it just fascinated me. And I've always grown up watching people fight. Um, maybe it has to do with residual stuff from the Vietnam War. Who knows? But uh, I really appreciate what the athletes go through, the discipline, the weight gain and losses, you know, mm. and going to those ice baths like oh um and ice baths 
Yes. Yeah. Do you know what one of those is? Well, I imagine it's a bath full of ice. Yeah, it is. But what, <laughs> yeah. what's its, its purpose is to uh, for recovery, particularly, you know, in terms of bruises and things like that, uh, muscle injuries and stuff like that. Does you, it you slow know, down? It, yeah, it, 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 well, it accelerates the, the healing and recovery process. You think it would slow it down? No, I mean, they've soon figured out that the thing to do is to draw the blood out of the wound. Oh, okay. With the ice. And, and, oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So when my son turned eight, we got him into MMA, mixed martial arts. Mm. And uh, he quit this year. I was so sad. But, you know, mm. in that journey, he's he's been doing amazing stuff with Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And... Hence, we've been very involved with um, meeting the coaches and meeting the athletes and endorsing them when we can, sponsoring them when they can. A lot of these are, you know, rising up to the to the top. And um, the last person that I sponsored was Sarah Alpar, who actually made it to the UFC, had two bouts there, but she got cut because she didn't win her two two fights. But, you know, it's just everybody's got their journey. And if we can be a part of it or, or help along the way, that, that's what makes me just so happy uh, and that's part of why i'm doing what i do with the books and, and for our authors but yeah. mm. yes every yeah, ufc fight we try to watch it wow <laughs> well it's you know there's a big week event this weekend i believe um just to explain to our listeners who perhaps aren't aware of what ufc stands for it's the ultimate well, I, thought it was, Championship. I thought it was kentucky fried chicken no 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 no, no 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 it's <laughs> um it's uh it's run it's run by dana white is that right is, is he still yeah. running yeah okay so he's the impresario who who created it and uh mixed martial arts is a huge yeah. thing in the states particularly and over here you may have heard of conor mcgregor who's an irishman who is yeah. multi multi multi-millionaire as a result of the fame he created in the ufc but selling whiskey yeah uh, pretty money good <laughs> pretty good proper whiskey actually yeah i haven't tried it yet i haven't tried it oh. Okay. Um, he sold. I think he sold it on now the brand, hasn't he, for for casquillions of dollars. Now yeah. I'm going to a martial arts event that you perhaps would score. You can't call that martial arts, surely. What, tomorrow, yeah. I'm going to clash at the castle uh, in Cardiff, which is a WWE pay per view, <laughs> World Wrestling Entertainment. I love it. Yes. <laughs> and... <laughs> okay, <laughs> we, we are now best friends because. Okay. <laughs> good. He when I was in my 20s, I loved WWF before it was WWE. Yes. I even owned boxer briefs that had The Rock on it. And my best friend <laughs> had Stone Cold Steve Austin. And we would say the stupid lines, you know, like, do you smell what The Rock is cooking or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Know your role, you jabroni and all that sort of stuff. Yes. Yeah. What was that you program know, we watched that was like Big Brother, but for wrestling? Oh, um, that was Tough Enough. Tough Enough. He got mm. me into Tough Enough. So now, do you guys watch Formula One? Yes. Oh, oh, don't talk about Formula One. They're obsessed. But two, well, I've so got three boys. Two of them are obsessed with Formula One. They You're are obsessed. Well, I, okay. I am obsessed with Formula One, yeah, I, since, since a little boy. This conversation's so, going all over the place. Every Saturday and Sunday, we can't go anywhere between, it's usually between about two or three or three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Isn't it? Well, I, 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 I just <laughs> talked to you about this because, you know, for years, the Americans turned their blind eye to, to Formula One. And since um the documentary series has hit netflix yeah, uh, it has life. been yeah has been amazing yeah. just how much it's taken off so you you, you like watching formula but one pre- presumably oh, you came into the upset. sport a lot earlier than that did you say that again adrian did you get into the sport before way before you know netflix started making it popular in the states 
no. So my husband was into Formula One and I just couldn't understand what's the big deal of watching cars going around a circle in a mm. track, right? That's my opinion, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it really was Netflix's uh, docuseries of Drive to Survive that really got me hooked. And then we binge watched every season and, and, and I've been a fan since the beginning of this year. So maybe a bandwagon fan, but I absolutely loved it. And I had the opportunity to go to the Miami Grand Prix. Oh yeah, um, that was fantastic. The, the, the debut, right, at Miami. And that was intense, guys. It was so many <laughs> celebrities, so much money going in there, so much roar of the engines. And um, yeah, it was just fantastic. So we're going to try to go to the Vegas one um, happening in yeah. November of next year, which will be a brand new circuit track that uh, street track, sorry, street track. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> will you watch that on TV? We can yeah. look out for you and wave. We, we, we will. We will watch it on TV. <laughs> okay, I'll wave. No, I don't think people really appreciate it until they've seen it in person. A, the noise, but B, the incredible air displacement that a Formula One car creates. And therefore, you get this incredible imp- pressure in your chest oh, well. as it goes past. Um, it is amazing. I wouldn't like the noise. I'm a real wuss when it comes to noise. So. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been in and in around Formula One for, for many, many years as a sports journalist. Um, but uh, the, the thing that I've really enjoyed in, in recent years is the fact that there is so much of historic racing and the old drivers coming out of retirement into the cars they used to drive even back in the, the guys who used to race in the in the 60s are getting back into the cars they used to drive because everyone restores them and keeps them going it is remarkable to see these guys in their 70s mm. driving <laughs> at ridiculous well, speeds you should watch that movie grand prix that was oh, yeah. in the 1960s it was it's three hours long but it was really really well done that's the james um, garner movie isn't it uh yes yes it was and it's anyways if you're an f1 fan watch that movie it's just classic yeah there's this horrible bit where bloke flies out of his car and sort of uh he's hanging from a tree at the monza i think <laughs> it was around the around the bank yeah yeah but that's that's what happened three drivers a year would be killed in that period of formula one it was uh the killer years as they call it um yeah. just extraordinary so seeing any of these old guys still going um <laughs> is is remarkable well that's that's fantastic uh you know to, to have all those sports interests i mean i i, I salute you because yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to get rebecca into any other sport than darts no, is really, really... I like tennis. oh you like tennis too yeah, yeah. i watch tennis um oh you yeah, watch Serena williams, williams. Yeah, um, we're a little bit agnostic with Serena Williams. I have seen. What do you mean her... we? I don't know. Well, I've I've watched. <laughs> I used to cover Wimbledon, and so I've watched her play quite a number of times. But every time she ended up on my court, which was number one court, so it'd be once a, once a tournament, yeah. she'd usually lose when she went there. You know, and she'd get really stroppy. Now she has her moments. I mean, let's not let's not sweep away all the things she's done with officials or you know sweeping balls that that have hit ball boys in the face and all this sort of stuff it happens i know it's a passionate game but sometimes she can let herself down and i've seen too many of those occasions really whereas um you know at the moment we're all talking about emben radicano and of course she's kind of messed it up at the uh flushing meadows so uh, yes it's not i saw a tweet from our friend russell (laughs) about that (laughs) yeah we're we're best my best friend and your one of your long-term friends is the tennis correspondent of the bbc so we we get to hear all the inside gossip yes so Uh, what what jokovic has been up to naughty boy (laughs) (laughs) when the states is called jokovic oh Oh. yeah but it's yeah jokovic (laughs) not jokovic and we actually play tennis together it's like it's our one sport that we can 
partaking together. So we play about three times a week. I mean, when I say play tennis, it's like hit, oh, whoops, hit, oh, whoops. Yeah, hit hit and then pick up the ball. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, look, uh, Amy, we ought to get to the the real crux of this interview, which is, of course, the random question. So uh, uh, let me give it the build up. Okay, Rebecca's random question. So it's a school holidays over here in the UK still and vacation vacation school vacation and my youngest son who's 12 and I've been watching some vintage tv from when I was a child and it's called Grange Hill and it's about it was a school basically like a soap opera set in a school and it's been fascinating because uh, the season we're watching was first aired at the late late 1970s and he's saying it's not like that now school's not like that now so my question is kind of related to school I would like to know who was your most inspirational teacher when you were at school and why? Oh, gosh. I would say Mrs. Swenson, uh, my Spanish teacher in high school. And first day of class, constant Spanish. Hola, como estas? You know, and it's just like nonstop Spanish. And I learned through singing. That was how she taught us to um, speak was through songs. And of course, you know, it was much more fun to sing songs like bada bada la bamba. (laughs) Um, That's that's as bad as I get, right? Um, Anyways, but yes, Mrs. Swenson still is in my life today. We lost connection for many, many years. And thank goodness for Facebook and social media, we were able to find each other. But she lives in California. I live here. And she's always involved and it's not just me it's every student is treated the same it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is your social economic background what you know hell you're going through she is the the hook that you hang your coat on and the big arms that you want to wrap yourself around you know it's just she's amazing so yes mrs swenson yolanda swenson if you hear this <laughs> i'm talking Let's about hope so Aww, we'll tag her in yeah yeah she's a beautiful soul that's fantastic. Well, you have, for me, so I think for me, um, it would be my English teacher. So when I, uh, when I was about uh, coming up to 16, because um, I used to read as a child, but it was mainly sort of um, adventure books, Enid Blight and, you know, sort of fairly lowbrow. But he made us study the first page of Catch-22. And it was just the first page. We read the first page. He said, that's it. We're not reading anymore. And I thought, no, you can't do that. And he got me into reading proper literature yeah that's pretty because special. he loved books he loved reading and he mm. loved science fiction as well so he got me yeah we read uh, 1984 and um fenheit i've forgotten the title now ray bradbury yes don't ask me so uh, yeah i know yeah what you he was just it was just a teacher who's passionate about their subject and you think how could you be passionate about the subject all day every day and for years and years and years but if you're truly passionate then you can be yeah, I think, and I suppose mine was uh, well. I could think of all the teachers who 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 by their negative example inspired me, but uh, <laughs> that's not quite the same. <laughs> no, um, I would say definitely. Uh, he only taught me for one year. A guy called Mister Pearson. I don't know anything else about him really, apart from at the time I was ten years old, and he was our history teacher, and he was completely different from anything else we had in our school because it was a it was a private school, so you know fee paying 
school and uh, he came from a working class background in I think it was Sunderland which is in the northeast so he had a, a particular accent which you get from go on do in... the accent well he speak you know he used to talk about history and like that you know. oompa loompa. Uh, oompa loompa. no <laughs> we do apologize for our northeastern uh, writers and so um <laughs> But the fact is that it was very different. And and what he did was he stretched us, inspired us. He was really, really good. But he set us some really tough challenges. Age 10, I mean, it was probably pitched completely wrong. And now nowadays there's a curriculum, so it's very, very strictly con, con, contained. But we were all given individual uh, projects to do on a different subjects. And none of us were doing the same thing. And I was doing Lord Shaftesbury, who was uh, a 19th century politician who reformed the lives of children who pr- hitherto at the age of five were working down mines or climbing chimneys and all this sort of thing. And he brought in legislation to make that illegal or at least restrict it. So that was interesting. But I do remember my friend, and I have mentioned him before, he's now a professor at Oxford University, Duncan Richards. He got the Vietnam War. <laughs> Oh, right. Which is a challenge when it's 1980 and it's only just finished. Um, You know, there there was very little for him to work with. Yeah. And in those days, you only had library books. Look, Oliver Stone hadn't done his thing. (laughs) The first person accounts hadn't come out at this point. And a lot of the people who made the decisions, certainly on the American side, were still in power or still influential, but hadn't written their, you know, Robert McNamara hadn't you know, made his all sort of confessional films and all those sort of things. So it was, it, it, he found it very, very difficult. He hated that process, uh, having nothing to work with. And I didn't have that much to work with, but I loved it. Mm. But he was an inspiration, truly. I must admit, I used to love researching stuff at that age when you had the library. That's all you had. You didn't have Google or anything. So you had your encyclopedias and your school library. Well, yeah, yeah, those were the days. <laughs> Oh, it's so much easier now, isn't it? Oh, the world changed. <laughs> yes. It, there's really no excuse not to know something apart from not lacking the curiosity and the and the time to research. Well, I've got it, a twelve-year-old so. who's a sponge, so I ask him first now. <laughs> so, in, in, let's let's go back to uh, before we wrap up. Um, just looking forward to the the vision then for for the business for Quillhawk Publishing. Where do you expect it to be, or hope to be, in five years' time, say? Well, here's the thing. I have not ran across any other Asian American female-owned indie publishing business yet. Yeah. So if I am the first, wahoo. <laughs> yeah. And if I can uh, grow this into an empire where I'm helping people share their stories, their knowledge, whatever it is, one book at a time, that is my ultimate goal and ultimate dream. So yes, thank you for that question. Well, that's no, a great not, dream no, not I at all yeah. uh, and for those people who've been listening to this and want to find out more about it where, where can they find you and and the company if they go to quillhawkpublishing.com they'll find my new website Woohoo! <laughs> and uh, <laughs> i'm so excited for this website anyways thank you to media vines who who did the graphic design and or the web design for it and they did all this fancy sexy reels and videos um, but yes quill q-u-i-l-l uh, hawk h-a-w-k and publishing.com fantastic excellent <laughs> well amy lee it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, on on the show and we wish you all success for the future thank you so much and we'll stay in touch on social media and Absolutely. i continue Absolutely. to listen to your podcasts thank you so much inspiring story oh absolutely i felt the emotion very deeply so mm. I was... yeah at one point I, I felt early on in that interview when i asked a question in particular 
question about her mother and, and, and her experience and going back to Vietnam, whether I'd gone too far too early, if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, you did go a long way early, but I wouldn't say you went too far too early. I think that was the right approach, actually, because it drew the story out. Mm, absolutely. Um, it was a great interview. Yeah. And well, and somebody we would never have come across unless yeah. I'd put out a tweet <laughs> randomly asking for a publisher yeah. to come on the podcast. So. Well, that's, that's wonderful. So, um, who's next week's guest, please? So next week is um, a writer called Catherine Balavage. Yeah. Yeah, Bal- Balavage. Yeah. We'll find out how it's, how it's pronounced. <laughs> uh, looking forward to, to, to meeting Catherine next week uh, as part of uh, episode number 69. So we are we're we're rattling towards that that top one hundred figure. Sorry, eighty nine, eighty nine, sixty nine. Yeah. What am I talking about? Uh, well, who a, can say why you had that number in your well, head? Well, that's a Freudian slip, isn't it? So sorry, so sorry. Um, this week coming, so the kids will gradually go back. My son James is going back to uh, start his A level final year. Uh, that starts tomorrow. I spent some of the weekend with him. We've been to Cardiff, and uh, some of you all know that that involves going to see some wrestling. Um, clash at the castle at uh, the Principality Stadium or Millennium Stadium as you may know it uh, and it was quite an incredible event probably one of the best live events that world, the World Wrestling Entertainment Company have done in decades frankly um, so privileged to be there I know you don't like that sort of stuff but you've got to admire all the sort of effort that goes into putting a show that size on 62,000 people watching it oh me um, yeah what people pretending to fight I Personally, I think that's weird. Well, if you saw some of the, the people coming off out of the ring, they 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 weren't pretending. And I me. I want to see Sugar Daddy and Big Haystacks come back. Cause... Well, um, <laughs> Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks got a got a name check in the commentary. Oh, yesterday, believe it or not, they were going through all the names of the, the great British wrestlers and why there's such a great fandom in this country. But there were four, fans from 42 different countries travelled to Cardiff to to watch this. They counted. Yeah. Well, they knew where the tickets were bought, oh. and um, it was it was incredible in, in kind of city centre with all the flags and stuff for the for the event, and just everyone wearing merchandise all around the place. So, were they wear, was everyone wearing short, little, tiny pants, shiny pants? And one or two people were dressed as wrestlers like Hulk Hogan from the from the sort of veteran era of WWE. Yeah, there were certain people who were dressed as as wrestlers. Was anyone dressed as Sugar Daddy? No. No. Big Daddy. <laughs> I love it when you call him Sugar Daddy. Anyway, um, so that was fun. Uh, exhausting um, as well. Came home late last night. But uh, ready for another energetic week. Lots and lots to do. I've got a ton of audio stuff to do. A lot of marketing stuff to think about. Uh, I've just read Jonathan Peace's third novel, Cut and Shut, which I absolutely adored. I'm going to feedback on that this week. Um, brilliant book. Can't wait to release that. Uh, I'm next on to the next AJ Aberford as well, number four in the series. Talking of AJ Aberford, so we had the delivery on Friday. I was mm. I was so busy on Friday to the extent that I didn't get to open the box till ten o'clock at night. It was mm. that bad, but it was a delight to do it, and the cat helped me. So Hawk at the Crossroads, we've got copies of Hawk at the Crossroads ready for publication. This uh, we in September, aren't we? Later this month. So that's yep. very exciting. We. Have we got a busy month in September or is it just the one? No, we've got two books published two books. in September. We have Hawk at the Crossroads yes. on the 20th and then a week later we have Rob Gittins, I'm Not There. Absolutely. Fantastic. 
We look forward to speaking to Rob later in the uh, in the month yes. on the podcast. Yes, I need to arrange a time with Rob. If you're listening, Rob, we're coming to talk to you. Well, we're not coming to talk to you. We're going to talk to you. And it's just a couple of weeks from uh, bloody Scotland. So we've got to think about whether we're going or not. We haven't quite decided yet. But as we mentioned last week, two of our authors are appearing on stage, which is terrific. And uh, we would like to go, but we haven't quite nailed out all the wrinkles that need to be done to fit in all that. But we are going to Harrogate to Noir at the Library as organised by Malcolm Hollingdrake and sponsored by us at Hoback. So that's the Saturday, yes. the 17th. And Ollie Jarvis will be there. Um, we'll have books to sell as well, Ollie's books. and Fantastic. Malcolm too. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to that. So uh, plenty to come in September and stay with us on the Hobcast Book Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from. We added two more platforms last week, so there's no excuse. There's about 13 of them now, I think, that we, we uh, podcast to. And uh, we've also got our website, of course, www.hobeck.net, where you can, uh, if you listen to the end sting, you'll get a discount if you put in a particular code. Um, Hobcast20, I think it is. Yes, it is. You get so a, please a, do. Yeah, get a discount on our uh, uh, paperback books from our website. But from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. And we both wish you a very happy and creative week. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.